I'd leave my tea up there, but then I don't know if I'll make it through Isaiah 14 or not. If you got your Bibles with you, <clears throat> we're going to continue our journey through the book of Isaiah, looking at Isaiah chapter 14. And as I alluded to this morning, Isaiah chapter 14 is a, a unique chapter. There's only one other chapter like it in the scripture. That's Ezekiel 28, and we'll be looking at both of them uh, tonight. And as we look at it, here's what we're going to see. The Lord is bringing a prophecy. Remember last, last time we were together, we were talking about the fall of Babylon. We're, we're talking about Babylon's utter destruction. And what we need to understand when we study the Bible, the Bible is a tale of two cities. God's city, Jerusalem, and the city of rebellion against God, Babylon. So whenever we look at those names, whenever the Lord's talking about them, He's talking about God's city, God's people, and Babylon, he's talking about those who are in rebellion against God. Remember, we, we shared last time, Babylon was founded in, in uh, the book of Genesis. Nimrod was the first king. He built the Tower of Babel. You remember all the people gathered together in one language underneath Nimrod in rebellion against the Lord. And the Lord confounded their language so that mankind split up and, and went separate ways and, and withheld having to bring judgment against uh, the earth, at least for a time. And as he did this, as he does this work, we're seeing from that moment, guys, from that moment in Babylon, every false religion has its foundation there. All those weird things we do in the holidays. Easter with bunnies and eggs came from Babylon. Christmas, December 25th, came from Babylon. It was Christianized by Constantine, but originally it was uh, set up for the winter solstice and worship of Semiramis and Tammuz, which were uh, gods in the Babylonian system. Now those gods, when the, when the languages were confounded in Babel, those people spread and they changed names. Okay, and you go through almost every ancient religion and you're going to see the same thing, Semiramis and Tammuz of Babylon... You're going to see it in, in Osiris and Isis of Egypt. You're going to see it in, uh, in Japan, in China, everywhere. They bring that same concept. What is the concept? A virgin birth, a child who dies and is risen again, and that that birth of that child is attributed to Almighty God. Now, hopefully we understand that you don't counterfeit something that's false, Right? When I was going through school, one of the things one of my uh, professors in regular school tried to tell me is because all the world's religions have that similar foundation, that's where Christianity got started, and that's what it's all about. That's, it's the same thing, just different names. But in reality, what we see is if the devil's going <coughs> to counterfeit something, he's going to counterfeit that which is true. You don't make a counterfeit $3 bill. Nobody take it right? You counterfeit that which is true. And so the, the devil makes that counterfeit. It's kind of interesting. If you do a careful study, I, I did encourage you, if you're able to get a book called The Two Babylons uh, by Reverend Hislop, he does a bunch of research into uh, the foundation of a lot of those religious systems. It's funny because as you do a study in the Word of God, what happens is uh, 
the, the Babylonian foundation stayed in Babylon for the Babylonian mystery religion for years and years and years. And then it moved to Pergamos. And from Pergamos, it was gifted to Caesar as a gift. Uh, they sent the high priest of the mystery Babylon religion to, to Caesar. His title, Pontifex Maximus. Uh, it's also a title uh, that has been... Yeah, thanks, bro. That has been given or accepted uh, by the Pope. Now, I'm not trying to say the Pope is Mystery Babylon. You make your own uh, uh, decisions on that as you, as you study. But as you take a look, those things had their foundation where? Babylon. So in the Bible, when God talks about the destruction of Babylon, there's three places he's going to talk about it. Here, where we are in the book of Isaiah. He's going to talk about it in Jeremiah chapter 50 and 51. And Revelation chapter 17 and 18. All of those chapters are dealing with the exact same thing. Now, whether Babylon is idiomatic of just the false religious system and the commercial system of the world, maybe it is. If it's actual Babylon, where Babylon is today, somewhere along the line, I could certainly see the world gathering uh, in support of, uh, of Iraq and, and building a, a world center and, and having it in Babylon. Who knows? The reality is <clears throat> that system is going to crumble. And one day it's all going to fall. Revelation 17 and 18 lay that out for us. So as we look at that, realize that when the Lord's speaking of Babylon, he's not necessarily, especially here, talking about the actual city. The things that he talked about in chapter 13, haven't taken place yet. Babylon is not just totally empty with no people. The Lord says no one will dwell there. It'll be desolate, empty. So there's something coming at a future date that, that we'll see that complete fulfillment in. So as we look at chapter 14, the Lord begins like this. For the Lord will have mercy on Jacob... And will still choose Israel. Isn't that good news? If you don't understand it as good news for you, I don't know how to help you. Jacob, liar, deceiver. The Lord will have mercy on the liar, the deceiver, Jacob, the one who is also named governed by God. And God will still choose Israel. God's not done with Israel. Romans 9, 10, and 11 lay out for us God's prophetic plan for the nation of Israel. God is still going to do a work. He's still going to do a perfect work with them and fulfill his promises. Because, guys, uh, the covenant that God made with the nation of Israel is what's known as a, a, a covenant that was not based on them. Unconditional covenant. That covenant meant that it was based on who God is, not who they are. And God's going to keep his word. So he says here, now listen. This works both near and far fulfillment. Near fulfillment. Children of Israel are going to be taken into captivity in Babylon. But they're not going to be there forever. God's not going to forget about them. God's not going to leave them there. <clears throat> He's going to bring them back out. One of the things you and I have to realize as we go through this walk of life is it came to pass. Nothing lasts forever except when we see Jesus face to face. Everything else is temporary. And so when the Lord lays this out for him, he's telling him, hey, 
It's temporary. You're going to go to Babylon. It's temporary. I still choose you. I still have a plan. When we face struggles and trials in our life, we need to know God still has a plan. It's not, I, I, I would like to see us get out of the idea that everything that happens to us that's negative or bad is God's punishment. God poured out his punishment for sin on his son, Jesus Christ, at Calvary. He paid the price. So as we look at that, we need to realize that the rain falls on the evil and the good. Jesus said life here would be hard. It's okay. We need to know it's just temporary. It's just temporary. God still has a plan. God still is moving. He says, I will settle them in their own land. It's interesting because when you look at that, the Lord did settle them back in Israel. And then in 70 AD, they ceased to be a nation in 1948. He settled them back again. God's still doing his perfect work. The strangers will be joined with them and they will cling to the house of Jacob. Scripture goes on, then people will take them and bring them to their place. And the house of Israel will possess them for servants and maids in the land of the Lord. They will take them captive whose captives they were and rule over their oppressors. Folks, that hadn't happened yet. Hasn't occurred. The Lord brought them back into the land, but they never ruled over the Babylonians. They never ruled over their enemies. When does it happen? When Jesus Christ sets up his kingdom... In the thousand-year millennial reign, they are going to rule over the world at that time with Jesus Christ as their king. So it's looking toward that fulfillment. And it will come to pass in that day that the Lord gives you rest from your sorrow and from your fear and the hard bondage in which you were made to serve. I like that verse. Every once in a while I go back to that and read it. Now, I realize that that was written for the nation of Israel. But all the promises of God in Christ Jesus are yes and amen. I look at that and I know one day this is all going to end. Whatever grief there is, whatever difficulties, whatever heartaches, it's all going to end. There'll be rest from our sorrow. There'll be freedom from fear and the hard bondage in which we have to serve. God's going to take all that. What does it say in Revelation 21? He'll wipe away every tear. There'll be no more sorrow, no more death. All those things will have passed away. Jesus said, behold, I make all things new. And so that's the day we need to be looking for. Not focused too close. Not focused where we're struggling today. Focused on that future glory. Focused on what God's going to do and what God's going to accomplish in our lives. And you will take up this proverb against the king of Babylon and say... How the oppressor has ceased and the golden city ceased. Kind of mirrors uh, <clears throat> the concept that Revelation chapter 17 that says, Babylon the great has fallen, has fallen. The idea here is it's a funeral dirge, a funeral song. And this funeral song is given about this great city that rose up in rebellion against God. This great city that, that held God's people captive for 70 years. This city that God's going to deal with, Babylon, will cease to be a world power uh, right after Israel is released. They'll, they'll cease to be that power. We'll see the, the Medo-Persian Empire come in as Daniel laid out for us. But he wants the people to know, as they're reading Isaiah, this is not going to last forever. This city is going to be obliterated. It's going to be wiped out. It's going to be 
destroyed. Everything doesn't stay like it is. I don't care how it is. If it's good, it's not staying that way either. If it's bad, it's not going to stay that way. Life fluctuates. There's ebb and there's flow. And the Lord wants us to realize why. So when it's good, you'll celebrate the joyful times and really appreciate them. And when it's bad, you won't think this is how it's going to be forever. That's the attitude God wants his people to have. He says in verse 5, The Lord has broken the staff of the wicked, the scepter of the rulers. He who struck the people in wrath with a continual stroke. He who ruled the nations in anger is persecuted and no one hinders him. Now, when God brings his judgment against Babylon, Babylon's going to fall. The king of Babylon at the time is going to be slain and the kingdoms are going to move on. But if you look further down the road, I think he's talking about Satan. And I think he's saying, listen, he is not ruling hell. We got this idea that in hell, Satan has a little throne. He's got it set up. He's sending demons to and fro to do whatever. That's not what the Bible says of hell. The Bible says when when he arrives in that place, he'll be persecuted and no one hinders him. And look, the whole earth will be at rest and quiet. And they break forth into singing. On that day when Satan is no more, no more tempting, no more falling, no more sin. What a celebration there will be in the earth on that day. But we need to realize (coughs) hell for Satan is just like hell is for any non-believer. He's not in control. He's not deciding who goes to what room, like all the dumb jokes they have about hell. He's just in torment, just like everyone else. The absolute absence of everything good. The absolute absence of it all. They'll break forth into singing. Indeed, the cypress trees will rejoice. The cedars of Lebanon saying, since you were cut down, no woodsman has come up against us. Now Babylon would go through and it it literally deforested Israel in building the city. And so he's saying, now that the city's destroyed, the forest will rejoice. But also the Bible tells us in Romans chapter 8 verse 21 that when the curse is lifted, all of creation is going to rejoice. All of creation will celebrate that there's no longer that, that curse upon the earth. And then look at verse 9. Hell from beneath is excited about you. To meet you at your coming. It stirs up the dead for you. All the chief ones of the earth. It has raised up from their thrones. All the kings of the nations. Saying when he arrives in hell. Hell's excited to have him. Oh so this is the one. Not only the king of Babylon, who was in rebellion against God, but also speaking of Satan, looking at the devil, looking at Lucifer, seeing the one who has caused all this grief. God says, hey, hell's looking forward to that day. Because that was a place that was created for him and his angels. So when we look at that, I'm often reminded, if you hold your finger here and Go to Psalm 73. <clears throat> As we go to uh, Psalm 73, I, I always often think about what David wrote here. 
says, truly God is good to Israel, to such as are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the boastful when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. How many of us have struggled with the same thing? David said, I almost tripped and fell. I almost lost heart. I almost give up when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Bad man prospering, getting away with what they've done, getting away with the choices that they made, at least how we see it. But the psalmist goes on. For there are no pangs in their death, for their strength is firm. They are not in trouble like other men, nor are they plagued like other men. Therefore, pride serves as their necklace, and violence covers them like a garment. Their eyes bulge with abundance. They have more than a heart could wish. They scoff and speak wickedly concerning oppression. They speak loftily. They set their mouth against the heavens, and their tongue walks through the earth. Therefore, as people return here, and waters of a full cup are drained by them, they say, How does God know? And is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the ungodly who are always at ease. They increase in riches. Surely I have cleansed my heart in vain and washed my hands in innocence. For all day long I've been plagued and chastened every morning. If I had said, I will speak thus, Behold, I would have been untrue to the generation of your children. When I thought how to understand this, it was too painful for me until I went into the sanctuary sanctuary of God and I understood their end. I don't think anyone can fully understand the horrors of a life in the absence of God, short of God. The Lord lays out for us that God is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but he is long-suffering. Why? He desires that no one would perish. He understands what it is to have an eternal existence in a place in the absence of God. Everything good and perfect comes from God. That's the absence of everything good and perfect. And there are some people that will say, well, you just cease to exist in hell. Well, there's a problem with that. At the beginning of the thousand-year reign of Christ, the Antichrist and the false prophet are cast alive into the lake of fire. A thousand years later, when you come to chapter 20 and 21, they're still there. They're still in hell. They're still in that place. When we look at Isaiah chapter 14, when it says, listen, hell is excited to receive you. Apparently, there's some kind of understanding and knowledge in hell about where you came from and what you've done. There's not the, the ceasing of understanding. There's not the loss of memory. It's all there. In that place, it's God giving to the rebellious what they asked for. We will not have you rule over us. So God gives them a place where he is not. Total, utter absence. Fire that is never quenched and provides no light. No warmth. Nothing good will penetrate that place. And so I think as the Lord considers that's why God's judgment is so long in coming. 
Before God judged the Canaanite culture, he waited 400 years. Why? To give them ample opportunity. To give them all a chance. Repent. Those who did, if you call out on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, what's the Bible say? You'll be saved. And if you do not, you won't. So the Lord laying this out, I think not only for the king of Babylon, but also for Satan. And they shall speak and say to you, have you also become as weak as us? Have you become like us? Your pomp is brought down to Sheol. Sheol is a word, Hebrew word for the grave. Same as, a, as the word in Greek for the grave, Hades. Sheol and Hades are the same. Your pomp is brought down to Sheol, the grave. And the sound of your stringed instruments, the maggot is spread under you and the worms cover you. Now here's why I think he's talking about more than just the king of Babylon. How are you fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? King of Babylon was not fallen from heaven. But there was one who is. There are two sections of scripture that talk about the fall of Satan. What Satan was like. What happened in those days before the the creation, before the fall of man. This is one of them, Isaiah 14. The other is Ezekiel 28. And they both begin the same way. as a prophecy against the earthly king. And then suddenly in the middle, you can feel them change gears and start to look at the power behind the king. The power behind the throne. You know that demons have dominions and powers, don't you? Daniel chapter 10, when we study Daniel chapter 10, what happened? Daniel prayed for an answer about a vision he had. And the Lord immediately dispatched an answer. And it didn't arrive for 10 days. He was withheld where? By the, by the king of Persia. The angel comes to him and says, The king of Persia held me back. I couldn't come until Michael the archangel freed me. What's that mean? That means there is real, true, spiritual battle taking place behind the scenes every day in our lives we don't even know about. I pray, Lord, and I'm waiting for your answer. We don't know which spiritual battles are taking place. But God says they're taking place. He tells us that those things are happening. For we do not battle against flesh and blood, but principalities and powers. Rulers in the dark places. There are real powers, and they seem to, in certain areas of Scripture, be located in uh, geographical locations. That's what Daniel's talking about. So as we look at this, he's going to turn his gaze from the king of Babylon to the power behind the throne. He's going to turn his gaze to Satan, and he's going to give us some clues to what Satan was like and how he fell, what took place. He says, now, how are you fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? By the way, Lucifer means uh, light bearer or the shining one. Now, that's interesting. Here's why that's interesting. If you go back to Genesis chapter 3 and you look at the ancient Hebrew, you go into the ancient Hebrew, because Hebrew, just like English, has developed over time. You guys with me? So you and I in English language, there are words that one time meant one thing that means something else today, right? 
So the same kind of thing happens in Hebrew. We go back to the ancient language, the language which it would have been written in, and you look at Genesis chapter 3, verse 1, and it says, The serpent was more cunning than all creation. The word for serpent is hashash. It means, in the ancient tongue, shining one. The shining one was more cunning than all the other creatures of creation. Now, why is that important? Folks, you need to understand, Satan was not eternal, is not eternal. He is a created being. Well, who created him? Well, the Bible tells us Jesus created everything that was created. All things, Colossians says, were created by him that were made. Everything was made by him. So who created Satan? Jesus did. Jesus created Satan. Satan is a created being, and he's a shining one. I find this interesting to me because we talk to maybe some friends and neighbors that are caught up in some other religions around the area, uh, particularly one that steps out to me is Mormonism. And what's the issue? What, how did Joseph Smith receive his revelation? An angel of what? Light. A shining one. A light bearer. What is it that the scripture lays out? Even if an angel of light brings you any other gospel than what we have proclaimed to you, let him be anathema, accursed. Accursed because he's leading you astray. What is Satan? The shining one. Isn't it interesting that, that so many people would be deceived away from the truth without any foundational uh, archaeological, <coughs> excuse me, evidence to the contrary, put all their faith in a word that was given to them by a shining one. Genesis chapter 3, the shining one caused Adam and Eve to fall. In Isaiah chapter 14, they call him Lucifer, the shining one or the light bearer. So, O Lucifer, son of the morning, how are you cut down to the ground, you who weaken the nations? For you have said in your heart, where does sin begin? In the heart. Always, every time, sin begins in the heart. You know it just like I do. Before I ever do it, I've got that nagging in my heart, that pull in my flesh, that desire to do evil, to do wrong. I'm born with that. Satan wasn't created with it. But he was created with will. And he could make a choice. So this iniquity, this sin, this fall of Satan, it began in his heart. How did it begin? Well, <coughs> five I will statements. I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. That's, a, by the way, an idiom for the angels. I will also sit on the mount of the congregation, on the farthest sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High. Pride lifted Satan up and caused him to fall. Now, while you're considering that, pride led to the fall of Satan. The Bible talks about six things that God hates. Yea, seven are an abomination to him. So turn with me to the book of Proverbs. In Proverbs uh, chapter 16, I'm pretty sure. 
what was it, 6? See, I'm dyslexic. Proverbs 6.16, 6, not 16.6. 6. That won't work out very good. There we go. Here's what it says. These six things the Lord hates, seven are an abomination. How does it start? A proud look. Pride. What led to the fall of Satan? Pride. What did Satan become? Look at this list. A lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood. Did Satan lie? Sure he did. Genesis chapter 3, we see the lies of Satan. Did Satan shed blood? What about Cain and Abel, the first murderer in the scripture? We go on. A heart that devises wicked plans. All throughout his career, Satan has devised plans to disrupt the plan of God and destroy the nation of Israel. Over and over and over again. Feet that are swift and running to evil. A false witness that speaks lies. And one who sows discord among the brethren. There's not a better definition of who Satan is and what Satan's all about than looking at Proverbs 6.16. He falls in pride. Now we'll see that <coughs> as we continue on. But I want you to realize that there are four falls of Satan. And to date, only one has occurred. There are three falls left to happen. The fall that has occurred is the one we're, living about, or we're reading about right here. That he was fallen, cut down to the ground. Satan fell from glorified to profane. It's the same thing that Jesus spoke of in Luke chapter 10 verse 18. When he said, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. He saw the fall. He was there when the fall of Satan occurred. Well, what's the next fall? The second fall is Satan will fall from having access to heaven. Job talked about it. It was spoken of in Kings and Zechariah. But we really see it emphasized in Revelation chapter 12. Satan. What does Satan mean? The accuser. The accuser of the brethren. Revelation chapter 12. The accuser of the brethren is in heaven accusing the brethren. Those who have been brought to the Lord. He's there making accusations. Just like he did to Job. Lord, what do you think about this guy? Oh, what about the things that this guy's done? And all the while, Jesus saying, I died for that. I paid the price for that. These are my kids. These are my people. They're clothed in my righteousness. What does the Bible say? The war breaks out in heaven, and Michael, for once, is going to get free reign to do what he's wanted to do for a long time. He's going to snatch Satan up and throw him out of heaven. The Bible says... That with his tail, he's going to gather a third of the stars. A third of the angels are going to fall with him. Where do they fall? To earth. And he says, woe to the inhabitants of the earth. Because Satan has come. He knows his time is short. How short is it? Seven years. Three and a half years. Depending on when it takes place during the tribulation period. That's all he's got. That's all he has left. He's on earth and he is ticked. That's the second fall that we're going to see when Satan falls. Now, he still has access to heaven now. Didn't Paul write that he's the accuser of the brethren? He accuses the brethren day and night. How does he accuse us if he's not there? He's there just like he was in Job. Why will there be a new heaven and a new earth? Because Satan has stained heaven with his presence. So there will be a new heaven and a new earth. Wiping away the existence of who he was and what he is. But he is there today accusing you and me 
<coughs> and anyone else making his accusations to the Lord. The third fall we see is when the millennial reign of Christ comes. When the millennial reign of Christ comes, what happens to the, to the devil? He is cast into the abuso, a pit. And he was not released from that pit for a thousand years. For a thousand years, the earth is going to see what it is to exist without him. Without him causing anybody to fall. Without him telling a lie. Without him spreading discord among brethren. That's why the Bible says the kingdom age is going to be perfect. What's the point of the kingdom age? God is teaching the, those who, who live to the kingdom, those who are a part of the kingdom, not the church. The church is his bride. Different relationship altogether. But those who are a part of his kingdom, he's teaching them that mankind is not a product of his environment. He's a product of his own choice. You don't have to be anything other than what you choose to be. And you can't blame it on your mom and your dad. Or I grew up, you know, in a poor place. I didn't have no food, whatever. The Lord says, that's not true. I'll show you. I'll prove it to you. Perfect peace. No sickness. The earth is perfect. Man doesn't have to work like he has to slave today. It'll be like it was in the Garden of Eden. Children won't die. We're going to see this, this long life expectancy again where people probably are going to live the full thousand years. And at the end, Satan is released for one season. And why? What does he show? He shows the depth of the evil in man's heart. Because the Bible says the army that comes in rebellion against Jesus Christ cannot be numbered. There are going, the kingdom, the people in the kingdom, given the opportunity to rebel against Christ, will rebel. And at that moment, the Bible says the heavens are going to roll up like a scroll. They're not going to be a battle. And all those people that made that choice are going to find themselves standing before a great white throne for the final fall of Satan when he is cast in to the lake of fire. When he is finally dealt with once and forever. So that's the future for Satan. That's the future for him. So as the Lord is laying these things out, listen, he says in verse 15, Well, yet you shall be brought down to Sheol to the depths of the pit. That word, abuso. Speaking of that time when he will spend in the pit. And those who see you will gaze at you and consider you saying, Listen, is this the man that made the earth tremble? The one who shook kingdoms? Who made the world like a wilderness and destroyed its cities? Who did not open the house of his prisoners? Is this the one? When we see him, that will be the, the answer on people's lips. This is him? Why do they say that? Well, I don't think it's because he's going to be so puny or so weak. I think it's going to be because he is beauty unmatchable by anything that we've seen. He's going to look perfect. He's going to look beautiful. He's going to look good. And they're going to look at him and say, this is the one? How do you think an angel like can deceive? Not because he looks evil with his little red tail and his pitchfork. His pointy ears. That's not him. That's not how the Bible describes him. Hold your finger here and go to Ezekiel chapter 28. <clears throat> and we'll see the other section of scripture that talks about 
this fall of Satan. Beginning in verse 11. Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me saying, Son of man, take up a lamentation for the king of Tyre and say to him, Thus says the Lord God, You were the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Who's the prophet talking about? He's not talking about the king of Tyre anymore. The king of Tyre wasn't in Eden. The shining one was. The light bearer was. The serpent, that dragon, the devil, Satan, he was there. What does it say about him? You were the seal of perfection, full of wisdom, perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering. The sardis, topaz, diamond, beryl, onyx, jasper, sapphire, turquoise, emerald with gold. Whenever we see stones listed out like that, especially describing beauty, we need to realize it's a classical way for ancient civilizations to discuss beautiful light. Anytime they're thinking about beautiful light, the beauty of the Garden of Eden, what it was like with with, uh, Adam and Eve who who were clothed in the Shekinah of God, the, the glory of the Lord, and for Lucifer to be a, have been clothed in the, in the same thing. So it's talking about this spectacular, <clears throat> beautiful light shining all around them. And then look what he says. The workmanship of your timbrels and pipes was prepared for you on what? The day you were created. Satan eternal? Is he the opposite of Jesus? No, he's a created being. He's in opposition, but he's not the opposite. Satan was created, and at any moment, he could be uncreated. The Lord would be able to easily handle. Why does he allow him? Does Satan cause you to sin? No. Satan reveals the choice that was already in your heart. He tempts you, but sin is born. Why? James tells us because of our own lust in our hearts, and we give it power. Satan, when he tempts, he just reveals what's in us already. We're already sinners in the image of Adam. We follow along with that sin nature. Jeremiah said, the heart is wicked, didn't he? He said, no one can know the heart and the wickedness of the heart. You take a look at the newspaper and see the evil that man does to himself. I mean, I don't care what movie you want to pull out of the past, some horror thing that you've seen. The reality of what people do to each other is worse than that. The reality of the evil that man can do. We try to tell ourselves, oh, they're a good person. No, they're not. No, they're not. If given the choice, we are all capable of incredible evil, and that's what Satan shows. He don't cause sin, he reveals that sin. So Satan goes about accusing the brethren, he is revealing, working out God's plan, and revealing my need for what? Savior. I need a Savior. I fall short. I'm a sinner. I need the Lord. Now I can choose to follow Satan and his lies and rebel against God, right? And God will give me what I'm asking for. Eternal separation from him. Or I can choose 
to seek the Lord out. For whosoever calls upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ will be saved. That's my choice. That's my choice to make. Satan, when he goes around and he tempts and he does these things and everybody wants to give him all the credit. Credit belongs to us. We're the ones that do it. He just whispering in our ear. But so many people think, oh, the devil made me do it. I wouldn't have done it left on my own. That's what the kingdom shows us, that we would. Left on our own, we'll rebel. Left on our own, we'll give lip service, but not real service. Jesus said, my people draw near to me with their lips. But what? Their heart is far from me. Their heart is far from me. And that's what we see going on at that time. So, and also look, his timbrels and his pipes. Was Satan a worship leader? Maybe. He was certainly a musical instrument. He was able to make beautiful music. I remember when I was a kid, they had, I can't remember what it's called. They probably still have it floating around somewhere. This this old... uh, uh, deal on backwards masking you guys remember backwards masking i ruined all my needles on on my turntables turning records backwards trying to see but we don't have to worry about it anymore because they just say it frontwards now they don't need to say it backwards but when we look at that one of the things that that people said that kind of made sense to me is you think music is a new thing for satan i mean he is a musical instrument he is and is there a certain type? You know, when I grew up, I love, uh, I love uh, McGee and his commentaries. But he was sure that jazz music was a gift of the devil. Because it's got all these weird chordings, minor keys, and, the, and, and God would never play music like that. I don't think I agree with that. I think all music can glorify God when it's given to him. For his glory, I think all music is capable of not glorifying God when it's done for ourselves. So when we look at that, he is musical instrument. He is beautiful. He is light. Look what it says. Uh, As we continue to go through, he says now in verse 14, you were the anointed cherub. That means you were given a position. That anointing, he's given a position as a cherub. When there is more than one cherub, they are called cherubim. I am is the ending that gives a word its its plurality, that it's plural. By the way, the singular word for God is El. The word used in scripture is what? Elohim. Interesting, isn't it? A plural word. Used for God. Nonetheless, Satan was the anointed cherub, given a specific job. What's that job? You are the anointed cherub who covers. What does that mean? He was the head cherubim. The scripture indicates there are five of them. There may be more, but the scripture talks about five. Four living creatures that are around the throne, crying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And Satan. The anointed cherub who covers, who was in charge, the most beautiful, the one watching over all the other cherubim, the one in charge, the one given responsibility. So what happened to him? He says, you were on the holy mountain of God. You walked back and forth in the midst of the fiery stones. Remember Isaiah chapter 6? 
In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. And when he realized, I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell among a people of unclean lips, I'm not worthy to see Almighty God. What did the angel do? Went over and took a coal, one of the fiery stones out of the, out of the uh, altar at the throne of God, and touched his lips and said, Your sin is purged. Now who will go for us? And Isaiah says, I will go send me. Here we see Satan, Lucifer, walking in that place. It's, it's literally in the very presence of God, not some outskirts. Right there in the presence of God. Well, what else? You were perfect in your ways from the day you were created. Again, emphasizing Satan is not the opposite of God. He's a created being. He is in opposition, but he is not the opposite. Until iniquity was found in you. Now, we can wrap our brains around that forever and say, <clears throat> how can something be created perfect and have iniquity found in it? The simple answer is, all you have to do is give that which is perfect choice. As soon as you give that which is perfect choice, they can choose to rebel. <clears throat> In Satan's case, he's going to choose to be filled with pride. Look how beautiful I am. Look how wonderful I am. Look how powerful I am. Look how important I am. Now, you, you compare that with Jesus Christ of Philippians chapter 2, 5 through 8. Who being in the very form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself what? Of no reputation. He emptied himself. The great kenosis. He set aside his rights. What do we see Satan doing? Very opposite of that. Satan exalting self. Raising self up. Making his choice. What about the angels? Didn't they all make their choice? Bible says a third of the angels fell with him, right? They made their choice. Were they created perfect? Sure. But they're given choice. And any time you're given choice, you have the opportunity to do evil. You have the opportunity to make that choice. Good God, giving you choice, has the opportunity both for you to express love <laughs> or for you to express rebellion based on your choice. The really cool thing that I see in that is that God made them anyway. He knew what it was going to cost him. The day he breathed life into man, he knew man would fall. The Bible says Jesus Christ was crucified from the foundation of the world. While he was breathing life into man, he was already willing to die for him. That's love. And he gives us choice. Now choose this day. Who will you serve? Who are you going to follow? What direction will you go? Look at verse 16. By the abundance of your trading, you became filled with violence within, and you sinned. Therefore I cast you as a profane thing out of the mountain of God, and I destroyed you, O covering cherub, from the midst of the fiery stones. Verse 17. Your heart was lifted up because of your beauty. Pride. 
Pride, that same thing that causes us to stumble and fall, that's what brought Satan down. He was perfect. He was beautiful. He was marvelous. The, the height of creation. And he was proud. And it brought him down. It brought him down just like it will bring us down. And so in Proverbs chapter 6, the Lord says, six things I hate. You go down that list. See if every single one of them doesn't just follow the steps of Satan in his rebellion and follow the fall of man and what is accomplished when we rise up in pride and reject the truth of God. That's what takes place. That's what happens. Your heart was lifted up because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. It was all about him. So I cast you to the ground. I laid you before kings that they might gaze on you. Now, <coughs> the Lord is looking to that, that time when Satan is cast into the lake of fire. So I cast you in. They'll see you. They'll look at you and say, is this the one? Is this the one? For you defiled your sanctuaries by the multitude of your iniquity, by the iniquity of your trading. Now, that's the second time we've seen that word trading. What's it talk about? Trafficking merchandise and slander. Revelation chapter 17 and 18. The fall of commercial Babylon. What is it that they traded? They traded merchandise and slander in the souls of men. It's that city. It's that city, that place that follows the example of Satan. That follows the example of the light bearer. That, that follows the lessons that he lays out for us. That he laid out and, <coughs> and they, he continues to do. So therefore I brought fire from your midst. It devoured you. I turned you to ashes upon the earth in the sight of all who saw you. All who knew you among the peoples are astonished at you. You have become a horror and shall be no more forever. And then Ezekiel goes back to prophesying about Sidon. So in the midst of his prophecy, just like we see in Isaiah chapter 14, he turns his focus to the power behind he turns his focus to the judgment of Satan. Verse 18 of chapter 14, it says, Now all the kings of the nations, all of them sleep in glory, everyone in his own house. But you are cast out of your grave, like an abominable branch, like the garment of those who are slain, thrust through with a sword, who go down to the stones of the pit, like a corpse trodden underfoot. He said, hey, all the kings end up here. All those lifted up with pride. There's one enemy nobody beats. Death. It is appointed unto man what? Wants to die. And then, judgment. We don't defeat him. Unless the Lord comes back and calls us home ahead of schedule. Woohoo! And then what's the scripture say? Death, where's your sting? Grave, where's your victory? You don't get one because the Lord has called us home. But short of that, we all owe one. We all will give one death. The same for Satan. So remember when we read Psalm 73. Oh, I was doing good. I was walking with the Lord till I considered the prospering of the wicked. Well, the wicked don't prosper. The wicked don't win. Nobody gets away with anything. The wicked will pay. 
So that's why the scripture calls out for us in the book of Hebrews and, uh, and in, uh, in the book of Romans. What's the Bible lay out for us? Hey, the Lord says, vengeance is mine. I will repay. Can you give it to the Lord? Oh, God, you don't know what this guy did. It doesn't matter. Can you give it to him? Can you surrender all those hurts and pains and what people done to you to the Lord? Give them to him and allow him to take care of it. He does what he does. Trust the Lord. What is all that anger, animosity, bitterness going to do to you? You're not meant to carry it. We're supposed to give it to the Lord. Oh, but Lord, I'm going I'm to fall. I'm going to stumble when I consider that they're getting away with it. They're not getting away with it. Do you trust God or you don't? That's the question. Trust me or you don't, the Lord says. You trust me, give it to me. And I, I'll give you rest. You give it to me, I'll take care of it. Vengeance is mine, I will repay. God knows how to do it, don't he? We don't. We don't even have the ability to understand good from evil. So we ought to trust the Lord in that circumstance. Verse 20, it says, Now, you will not be joined with them in burial because you have destroyed your land and slain your people. The brood of evil de- evildoers shall never be named. Prepare slaughter for his children because of the iniquity of their fathers, lest they rise up and possess the land and fill the face of the world with cities. As he's again now beginning to turn his attention to the king of Babylon, he's again now beginning to look at the things that are currently going on that God's going to judge the people that he used to judge his people. What does that mean? Didn't the Lord say to Babylon, I'm going to use you as a tool to judge my people? Yeah. And they were responsible for everything they'd done. It was their choice. It was all their choices. God used them to go into captivity, but everything they ever did, every harm they ever brought, that was their choice. <coughs> and the Lord's going to hold them accountable. When we come to the end and we see Belshazzar there having a party, using all God's implements, drinking and and having a good time with all the women there in the palace, and he praises the gods of gold and silver. Remember what appeared on a wall? Hand? Writing? Many, many, tekel you farsin. You have been weighed in the balance and found wanting. Today... Your kingdom is taken from you. He went home, having, or went to bed having soiled himself and died that night. He made his choices. And some people might have looked at him and said, oh, he gets away with everything. Trust the Lord. Trust the Lord. God's going to be able to, to provide the close to the chapter like we can't even begin to imagine. For I will rise up against them, says the Lord of hosts. Then I will cut off Babylon, the name and remnant, and offspring and posterity, says the Lord. And I will, <coughs> I will also make it a possession for the porcupine and marshes of muddy water. And I will sweep it with a broom of destruction, says the Lord of hosts. But when God's talking about Babylon, we know that there was a judgment that Babylon fell to the Medo-Persian Empire, just like Daniel said they would. But the Lord is also talking about the ultimate fall of Babylon. Remember, a tale of two cities. The city in rebellion against God and the city of God. 
those two cities, Babylon and Jerusalem, they're constantly mentioned in Scripture, Babylon in judgment, and Jerusalem as a place where the king is going to set his throne. So when we look and we see, well, <clears throat> Babylon doesn't look like this yet. I mean, we know Saddam Hussein was rebuilding it, right? Well, the Lord said nobody's ever going to lay another stone. So that judgment hasn't fallen, right? It hasn't taken place. Revelation 17 and 18 called Babylon the, the false religious system and the commercial system. Where are they going to be located? Some people say it's in Rome. Some people say it's New York City. Some people say it will be in Babylon. It might be. But the concept behind the city is the same. The city in rebellion against God will be judged. The wicked will fall. The righteous will stand. For it came to pass. God wins. And we can put our faith and trust in Him. And realize nothing stays like it is right now forever. It's always too soon to quit. You never know when God's salvation is right around the bend. Amen? Why don't you stand with me? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord God, we thank you for this time we can come before you. Lord, we thank you for this time we could study through uh, at least part of uh, chapter 14 of Isaiah. We thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you, God, that you care enough about us to explain to us how it was that Satan fell. And in that, maybe we can gain an understanding for how it is that we fall. For he was drawn away with pride. He elevated himself above the most high. I'm the most important thing. And all throughout your word, you warn us against that. You warn us against a proud look and a lying tongue and feet quick to shed blood. Father, we want to follow the example that you give us. We want the mind of Christ. We want to walk the right way, Lord God. We realize and recognize that the true king, the true power in all the universe is Jesus Christ and his Father and the Holy Spirit, triune God, leading us, guiding us, directing us, empowering us for ministry. So, Father, help us to follow, learn the lessons, understand the typology in the Old Testament Scriptures, see the mistakes and the trip falls, and learn. And may we know when we look at our circumstances, none of this lasts forever until we see your face. And what an incredible day that is going to be. For when we see you face to face, we will never be apart again the bride of Christ, with Christ, for all eternity. <coughs> Lord, we just lay this time before you and we ask, God, that your spirit would minister to our needs. God, that your spirit would touch us, equip us, guide us, direct us, lead us. Father, as we go throughout our week, that we would be prepared for those things that we face, but we would be prepared to face them in the power of your spirit, as we indeed surrender ourselves to the mind of Christ and realize the scripture calls us to humble ourselves in the sight of the Lord and he will lift us up. We give this time to you, Father, and ask your blessing upon it. 
In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.